Section 22 of Selected Interviews with Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Interviewer's Questions, read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Ingersoll's Responses, read by Chris Chapman. Interview Title, Beaconsfield, Lent, and Revivals. Printed in the Brooklyn Eagle, April 24, 1881. First question. What have you to say about the attack of Dr. Buckley on you and your lecture? Ingersoll's answer. I never heard of Dr. Buckley until after I had lectured in Brooklyn. He seems to think that it was extremely ill-bred in me to deliver a lecture on the liberty of man, woman, and child during Lent. Lent is just as good as any other part of the year, and no part can be too good to do good. It was not a part of my object to hurt the feelings of the Episcopalians and Catholics. If they think that there is some subtle relation between hunger and heaven, or that faith depends upon or is strengthened by famine, or that veal during Lent is the enemy of virtue, or that beef breeds blasphemy while fish feeds faith, of course all this is nothing to me. They have a right to say that vice depends upon victuals, sanctity on soup, religion on rice, and chastity on cheese that they have no right to say that a lecture on liberty is an insult to them, because they are hungry. I suppose that Lent was instituted in memory of the Saviour's fast. At one time it was supposed that only a divine being could live forty days without food. This supposition has been overthrown. It has been demonstrated by Dr. Tanner to be utterly without foundation. What possible good did it do the world for Christ to go without food for forty days? Why should we follow such an example? As a rule, hungry people are cross, contrary, obstinate, peevish, and unpleasant. A good dinner puts a man at peace with all the world, makes him generous, good-natured, and happy. He feels like kissing his wife and children. The future looks bright. He wants to help the needy. The good in him predominates, and he wonders that any man was ever stingy or cruel. Your good cook is a civilizer, and without good food, well-prepared intellectual progress is simply impossible. Most of the orthodox creeds were born of bad cooking. Bad food produced dyspepsia, and dyspepsia produced Calvinism, and Calvinism is the cancer of Christianity. Oatmeal is responsible for the worst features of Scotch Presbyterianism. Half-cooked beans account for the religion of the Puritans. Fried bacon and saleratus biscuit underlie the doctrine of state rights. Lent is a mistake, fasting is a blunder, and bad cooking is a crime. It is stated that you went to Brooklyn while Beecher and Talmadge were holding revivals, and that you did so for the purpose of breaking them up. How is this? I had not the slightest idea of interfering with the revivals. They amounted to nothing. They were not alive enough to be killed. Surely one lecture could not destroy two revivals. Still, I think that if all the persons engaged in the revivals had spent the same length of time in cleaning the streets, the good result would have been more apparent. The truth is that the old way of converting people will have to be abandoned. The Americans are getting hard to scare, and a revival without the scare is scarcely worth holding. Such maniacs as Hammond and the boy preacher fill asylums and terrify children. After saying what he has about hell, Mr. Beecher ought to know that he is not the man to conduct a revival. A revival sermon with hell left out, with the brimstone gone, with the worm that never dies, dead, and the devil absent is the broadest farce. Mr. Talmadge believes in the ancient way. 
With him, hell is a burning reality. He can hear the shrieks and groans. He is of that order of mind that rejoices in these things. If he could only convince others, he would be a great revivalist. He cannot terrify, he astonishes. He is the clown of the horrible, one of Jehovah's jesters. I'm not responsible for the revival failure in Brooklyn. I wish I were. I would have the happiness of knowing that I had been instrumental in preserving the sanity of my fellow men. How do you account for these attacks? It was not so much what I said that excited the wrath of the reverend gentleman as the fact that I had a great house. They contrasted their failure with my success. The fact is, the people are getting tired of the old ideas. They are beginning to think for themselves. Eternal punishment seems to them like eternal revenge. They see that Christ could not atone for the sins of others, that belief ought not to be rewarded and honest doubt punished forever, that good deeds are better than bad creeds, and that liberty is the rightful heritage of every soul. Were you an admirer of Lord Beaconsfield? In some respects. He was on our side during the war, and gave it as his opinion that the Union would be preserved. Mr. Gladstone congratulated Jefferson Davis on having founded a new nation. I shall never forget Beaconsfield for his kindness, nor Gladstone for his malice. Beaconsfield was an intellectual gymnast, a political athlete, one of the most adroit men in the world. He had the persistence of his race. In spite of the prejudices of 1800 years, he rose to the highest position that can be occupied by a citizen. During his administration, England again became a continental power and played her game of European chess. I have never regarded Beaconsfield as a man controlled by principle or by his heart. He was strictly a politician. He always acted as though he thought the clubs were looking at him. He knew all the arts belonging to his trade. He would have succeeded anywhere, if by succeeding is meant the attainment of position and power. But after all, such men are splendid failures. They give themselves and others a great deal of trouble. They wear the tinsel crown of temporary success and then fade from public view. They astonish the pit. They gain the applause of the galleries. But when the curtain falls, there is nothing left to benefit mankind. Beaconsfield held convictions somewhat in contempt. He had the imagination of the East, united with the ambition of an Englishman. With him, to succeed was to have done right. What do you think of him as an author? Most of his characters are like himself, puppets moved by the string of self-interest. The men are adroit, the women mostly heartless, they catch each other with false bait, they have great worldly wisdom. Their virtue and vice are mechanical, they have hearts like clocks, filled with wheels and springs, the author winds them up. In his novels, Disraeli allows us to enter the green room of his heart, we see the ropes, the pulleys, and the old masks. In all things, in politics and in literature, he was cold, cunning, accurate, able, and successful. His books will, in a little while, follow their author to their grave. After all, the good will live longest. End of Beaconsfield, Lent, and Revivals